Hello, this is Barry, and welcome to Simplicity Zen. Today is going to be our first episode on the science of Zen. Have you ever wondered why humans have so much dissatisfaction in life, and why meditation seems to be so effective in bringing us peace and happiness? In this episode, we will look at the neurobiological underpinnings of why we suffer so much and why Zen and meditation can enact such wonderful transformations in our lives. A quick note before we get going. If you're watching this on YouTube, I would appreciate it if you could take a moment to like the video and subscribe to the channel. YouTube uses these metrics in determining how widely to distribute the content, so it would be helpful and appreciated. If you are listening to this on a podcast app, you can use the subscribe features on the app or go to simplicityzen.com to sign up for the mailing list. There is also the scienceofzen.org website that goes into detail about the content that we will be covering today. As you've gone through life observing yourself and other people, you have probably noticed some patterns in how humans think and feel. It seems universal that we, as humans, get too easily bored, worry too much, have unhealthy habits, sometimes lack a sense of purpose in life, and too often get upset when our expectations are not met. Buddhists have long understood that the cause of these problems is an excess of out-of-control, self-obsession, and resultant clinging and grasping. Neurobiologists have recently come to understand that the underlying neurobiological source of this self-obsessed clinging and grasping is the brain's default mode network. The brain's default mode network is the primary culprit in creating pervasive dissatisfaction in our lives. In the context of this discussion, the default mode network has seven primary responsibilities in our brain. It is in charge of the following functions. The first function is time. It is in charge of conceptualizing the abstract concepts of past and future. The next function is the self. It is the source of self-referential thinking within the bounds of past and future. The third function is reality mapping. The default mode network has the responsibility for figuring out what the narrative rules of the world are in terms of what it thinks will keep us safe, what will make us feel good, and how to avoid feeling bad. From an evolutionary standpoint, it is obsessed with what is the best way to pass on our genes to the next generation. It keeps an internal reality map of the world from a self-referential perspective. It is a collection of the internal stories that we believe about the world in relation to ourselves. Craving and Aversion the default mode network makes us crave things and situations that it thinks will keep us safe, make us feel good, and help us have families and offspring. Conversely, it makes us feel adverse to things and situations that will cause pain. It is at this level where a sense of time, a sense of self, and the stories and narratives that we map onto the world all come together. Idle Time Problem Solving The default mode network will use almost every available moment to plan and analyze the future based on our cravings and aversion. If we're not doing something mentally active, it will start planning about the future. If the potential rewards or punishments of the future are important enough, it will escalate this planning and worrying into anxiety and stress. Habitual Behavior The default mode network is empowered to take control and hijack our behavior 
and force us to habitually behave in ways that are based on its ideas of what it thinks we need in the future. Clinging Understandably, the default mode network has extremely strong preferences that the positive and pleasant things and situations in our lives persist and stick around. The world, however, is a dynamic and changing place, and when good things go away, the default mode network is designed to make us feel really upset about this. In short, the default mode network is the neurological basis of our narratives about who we are and how the world works. It is also the neurological basis of how we habitually think and behave. The fundamental problem is that the default mode network's narrative stories about who we are and what we need out of life are very often based on faulty assumptions about reality. Conclusions can simply be wrong and are too often based on memories that are overly skewed towards negativity to the point of delusion. Also, just due to the nature of an ever-changing and chaotic world, it is inevitable that the default mode network's expectations will be frequently not met, which leads to frequent discontentment and often significant suffering in life. We spend too much of our time in trance-like and self-obsessed narrative thinking and worrying. It's a trance that keeps us separate and abstracted from the reality of the present moment. The default mode network is obviously useful from a survival perspective. But if we want to thrive and not just survive, we must find a way to limit its out-of-control operation. Obviously, it would be helpful to find a way to neurologically downregulate the default mode network when it's not acting in our best interest. As we look for a candidate for something that could possibly get the default mode network under control, let's take a look at another brain network, the Central Executive Network. The Central Executive Network is in charge of what neuroscientists call cognitive control. This basically means that it is in charge of deliberately solving short-term challenges in ways that do not rely on instincts or automatic habitual thinking and behaviors. If you're doing such tasks as trying to discover the source of a mysterious beeping in the middle of the night, deciding when to drive to work to avoid rush hour traffic, or figuring out how to assemble furniture, then you are exercising the problem-solving cognitive control functions of the central executive network. You can think of this as sort of a free will because deliberation and reason are involved in deciding on how to perform a task. Since this brain network is so good at analyzing and solving problems in a deliberate and self-controlled manner, it seems logical that it would be the perfect tool for the job of controlling the habit-based and frequently out-of-control default mode network, right? Wouldn't reason and logic be the perfect antidote to out-of-control and excessive self-referential worry? Wouldn't deliberate problem-solving override delusional assumptions about ourselves and the world that we live in? Unfortunately, it's just not that simple. As it turns out, the problem-solving central executive network has a surprisingly small amount of control over our default mode network. This is why we can't simply decide to think away most of our problems. For example, one might find themselves worrying about something that may go wrong in the future. The analytical central executive network might analyze the situation and realize that a bad outcome is unlikely and that it is a waste of time to worry. Unfortunately, the default mode network can often decide, despite our desires, to ignore the central executive network's analysis and do whatever it wants. If the default mode network wants to worry needlessly, there's very little that the central executive network can do about it, at least directly. The default mode network will also often override our deliberate desires to act in certain ways. For example, the central executive network might analytically determine that eating too much cake is bad for us. Again, 
If the default mode network decides that it wants excessive cake, it's likely going to get what it wants, what it craves. The central executive network is very likely to fail in its attempt to use reason and logic in its attempt to control habitual behaviors such as eating too much cake even when we know better. Generally speaking, we cannot think away our problems. We can rarely reason our way out of habitual behavior. If the central executive network cannot directly control the default mode network, is there a solution? Indeed, there is a solution. The solution to our excessive self-obsession and habitual thinking and behavior is to live life with our attention firmly planted in present moment awareness. It's all about states of mind. To have our attention firmly focused on the present moment is a state of mind. The trance-like thinking mode where we excessively ruminate about our lives or act habitually is also a state of mind. These two states of mind are like a seesaw. When one is happening, the other is diminished. It is an actual biological fact that they cannot both be active at the same time. When we are engaged with present moment awareness, our self-referential thoughts are naturally quieted and we get relief from thought-generated suffering. This is how we are designed, and we can leverage this design to experience lives of significantly less suffering and discontentment. Also, when we are abiding in present moment awareness, we are much less likely to get carried away by habitual thoughts and behaviors. We are more likely to see the world as it really is with fresh eyes. We are less influenced by the default mode network's often erroneous assumptions about ourselves and the world we live in. The neurological basis for this present moment awareness is something called the dorsal attention network, which we will look at next. We have talked about the default mode network, which is in charge of self-referential and habitual mentation, and also the central executive network, which is in charge of deliberate problem solving. The new brain network we are going to look at is the dorsal attention network, which is in charge of present moment awareness. When we are aware of something happening in the present moment, our dorsal attention network comes online and directs this cognition. The object of attention may be external, or it may be internal thoughts and feelings. Since it is active in the midst of completing a task that requires present moment awareness, it is sometimes called the task positive network. When the dorsal attention network is active, we are in the moment and our awareness is focused on what is both physically and figuratively right in front of us. It was mentioned earlier that present moment awareness is a state of mind and the trance-like self-referential thinking is also a state of mind. And only one of these two states of minds can be active at one moment. This is made possible by a very useful quirk in our physiology in that the default mode network and the dorsal attention network cannot both be active at the same time. They work at odds with each other for control over our awareness. It's like a seesaw. When the default mode network is raised up and active, the dorsal attention network is lowered and inactive. When the default mode network is active, the brain is free to daydream, fantasize, worry, time travel, crave, and force habitual thinking and behaviors upon us. The way scientists would describe this is that the dorsal attention network and the default mode network are anti-correlated. When the dorsal attention network is active, the mind is in a state of present moment awareness and a stance of receptivity and mental flexibility. Since this shifts down the default mode network, mental time travel, craving, and habitual thinking and behavior are all shut down. This anti-correlation between the attention and the self-absorption centers of the brain is the core driver of how Zen, mindfulness, and meditation works. This, by design, 
aspect of our physiology is the dynamic by which lives can be transformed and human discontent can be greatly reduced and perhaps even nearly eliminated. Living an open, receptive, and equanimous life becomes simply a matter of increasing the amount of time that the dorsal attention network is in control. It's about living primarily in present moment awareness. The more mindful we are, the less we have self-referential worries about the future, the less we get upset when life does not go the way we crave it will, and the less we are driven into habitual thinking and behavior. If this seems a little too abstract, it might be useful to consider that most people do things that shut down the default mode network via awareness all the time, in order to get a break from the onslaught of self-referential thinking. Activities such as reading, consuming entertainment, social media, dancing, participating in sports, and playing music are all activities that sharply curtail the activity of the default mode network. Indeed, one of the biggest appeals of all these activities is that they give us a moment of respite from worries and boredom, and we have seen that these feelings exist due to the default mode network itself. Of course, all of these activities that quiet the default mode network are only temporary respites, and many of them can cause their own escapist problems. But they illustrate how much people enjoy breaks from the relentlessness of the default mode network. Escaping the default mode network is a multi-billion dollar business. Luckily, there are, other, there are other effective, healthy, and lasting ways to quiet down the default mode network. How can we spend more time in present moment awareness and less time in the default mode self-obsession? The first step towards bringing mindfulness into our lives is to simply decide to be deliberately and purposely aware, to try to be in the moment. Note that this did not say something like, decide not to self-referentially think, crave, or act habitually. Remember, the deciding and the problem-solving part of the brain is a central executive network. It has a miserable time of directly trying to change the thinking, craving, and automatic behavior of the default mode network, but it can indirectly do this by invoking present moment awareness. It cannot decide simply to keep the brain from self-ruminating, but it can decide to pay attention. Deciding to pay attention activates the, the dorsal attention network. This automatically shuts down the default mode network. You can think of it like a three-step process. The first step is that the central executive network decides to pay attention to the current moment. This causes the dorsal attention network to come online, and the default mode network automatically goes offline because they are physically unable to both be online at the same time. With the default mode network sideline, we naturally have less worry, craving, and automatic thinking. In early stages of practice, this switch from the default mode network to present moment awareness typically does not last very long. For most people, the default mode network will quickly re-engage if there is nothing that is grabbing our attention in a very significant way. If someone is in the midst of life circumstances that are very stressful or upsetting, the switch back to default mode will be almost instantaneous. That's fine. When this happens, the central executive network can simply decide again to purposefully refocus attention in present moment awareness. Then again and again and again. It's something we repeat many times. This manual continuous re-engagement of mindfulness can be very helpful in two ways. The first way is that if we do this frequently, we can use it tactically to stay present when our minds start spinning off out of control. It's a good way to break cycles of worry and habitual behavior. Sometimes just a few moments of clarity can make a big difference. The second way 
that continuous re-engagement of present moment awareness via deliberate activation of the dorsal attention network is helpful, is that slowly, over time, we start changing our brains in very important ways that allow mindful awareness to engage on its own without the need of a purposeful and willful decision to do so. This continual re-engagement of awareness training is called meditation, and it involves yet another brain network. It's called the salience network. The salience network is the brain network in charge of quietly running in the background while scanning our bodies and the world around us for events and information that might be useful to know about. You could say it is the sensory traffic control part of the brain. If nothing of importance is happening in the current moment, the salience network lets the default mode network continue to use this downtime to worry, daydream, fantasize, or think or act habitually. If something does happen that requires immediate attention, the the salience network shuts down the default mode network and turns on the dorsal attention network in order to pay attention to what what is happening in the present moment. We have seen how the central executive network can willfully decide to pay attention. Scientists call this top-down awareness control. But when the salience network stops self-referential thinking and invokes attention, this is called bottom-up awareness control. It is present moment awareness that does not require a conscious decision to invoke. The subconscious salience network can invoke awareness without us deciding that it needs to happen. Let's now look at a three-step sequence of events that allows the subconscious salience network to hijack awareness and control attention when something happens. The salience network, or the traffic control part of the brain, notices something worthy of attention and activates the dorsal attention network, which is of course in charge of focused attention. When the dorsal attention network comes online, the default mode network automatically goes offline because they are physically unable to both be online at the same time. The mind is now naturally in in an alert and mindful mode of operation. I know that all these brain networks can get a bit confusing but here is the important point to take away. Present moment awareness can be invoked either willfully or the subconscious part of the brain can cause it to come online even if we don't will it to do so. Now here's another key point. Meditation, or in other words, the continual re-engagement of willful attention, eventually trains the salience network to invoke awareness even if nothing important is happening. Perhaps the most fascinating insight that has emerged out of the scientific investigation into mindfulness is that when you look at brain scans of experienced meditators, you find that even at the resting state, their default mode networks are very quiet. Normally, an external or internal important alert is needed to switch from default mode to alertness. But by contrast, experienced meditators have buffed up their salience network in a way that allows them to maintain relaxed awareness and alertness simply out of habit. Other scientific findings explains how this is accomplished. Meditation actually physically changes the salience network in ways that cause it to keep present moment awareness active more of the time. These physical changes include increased size and folding of key salience network brain regions, as well as improved connectivity to other brain regions. The primary point to comprehend here is that these are physical changes. The life changes that emerge from Zen practice do not come across or do not come about from adopting new philosophy or having a new psychological outlook on life. They come from the repetitive exercise of focusing awareness during meditation and the resultant physical changes in the brain. An analogy can be made to weightlifting. 
Your muscles do not get stronger through any sort of thinking. You need to physically lift weights to change the muscle size and structure. In the same way, the salience network is not buffed up via any sort of thinking. It too requires repetitive exercises of present moment awareness to have its physical size and structure changed. Zen practice is not the adoption of new ideas to replace old ones. This would be like trying to wipe away oil with more oil. Instead of adopting a new way of thinking about the world, Zen practice changes our relationship to thinking itself. It is a change of the very way we exist in the world. It is a transformation of how awareness functions in our lives. Now, let's look at other ways that meditation and mindfulness change the brain. The ability for the brain to change its physical structure and functioning in an enduring manner based on its experiences is called neuroplasticity. As we have seen, the primary way that mindfulness and meditation changes our brain via neuroplasticity is the strengthening of the salience network. Importantly, this is not the only neuroplastic change to the brain that is the result of mindfulness and meditation. Scientists have discovered many others. Some of these discoveries are, practice helps us relax and have less stress, practice allows us to physiologically have less generalized fear in our lives, practice helps us feel physical and emotional pain with much less intensity, enabling us to experience life with more equanimity, practice helps us have more resilience that allows us to bounce back quicker when we are upset. Practice helps us have more objectivity, which allows us to catch and stop ourselves from acting habitually to life stresses. In short, scientists have found in study after study that meditation has significant positive benefits to our lives and that these benefits are lasting and permeate our lives even when we are not actively meditating. This is because meditation physically changes our brain. Now let's talk a little bit about stopping to smell the roses. So far we have seen how Zen and meditation practice can reduce pervading discontent in our lives. But this is not the only part of the story. Zen does not just bring us from a state of distress to boring neutrality. It allows us to see the vibrancy and compelling immediacy of life as it exists in any particular moment. When we are ensnared by time traveling and trance-like self-oriented thinking, we will often find ourselves just kind of drifting through life in a gray fog of escapism and daydreaming. We can get lost in the dreariness of daily routine and barely notice as life flies by. Have you ever caught yourself thinking something like, wait, Christmas is next month? Wasn't it just Christmas? When we live a life more from a basis of present moment awareness, we are much more likely to appreciate the richness and vibrancy of the day-to-day -day basis of our experience. Even mundane and normal activity can be infused with a depth of satisfaction and fulfillment that might otherwise be missed. Each moment increases in vibrance and importance. With less self to occlude the view, we see what life really is. We feel more free and less constrained by self-imposed limitations. We have more life fulfillment and a better sense of who we are and our place in the world. It is the actualization of the proverbial stopping to smell the roses. Perhaps this section comes across as overly sentimental or even a bit woo-woo. But once again, all of this is backed up by scientific research. Neuroscientists have discovered that when a person experiences awe, the default mode network has shut down so that this uplifting experience can be fully processed. As Zen and mindfulness practice deepens, the default mode network's activity is lessened, 
our capacity to be awe-inspired by each moment of life is physiologically increased. Another advantage of Zen and mindfulness practice is that a life that isn't ruled by constant self-referential thinking and habitual behavior is a life where we feel more connected to and compassionate to the world around us. The brain circuits for compassion, empathy, and connectedness are all strengthened via neuroplastic changes brought about by Zen meditation. Our perception of life switches from what scientists call egocentric perception to allocentric perception. Our perception switches from a self-referential processing mode to processing the world as a whole. We see life less through self-focus-based perception and more through a holistic and relationship-based view. This is a more connected view of life. The more we can abide in present moment awareness without the gravitational pull of a worrying self, the less we are obsessed with our own needs and the more we can live life of service. At this point, you may be asking, but doesn't Zen tell us that there's nothing to gain from practice? Really, anyone with even a cursory interest in mindfulness or Zen may have encountered the idea that there is nothing to gain in practice. If this is true, how does this square with what we just have seen regarding the evidence that meditation can make significant and lasting alteration to our brain structure and connections? Isn't this gaining something? The important point to understand regarding this is that, from an experiential point of view, we are not gaining anything new at all from this underlying neurological transformation. We are simply optimizing what is already part of us, and if anything, we lose more than we gain in this process. We lose an entrenched and overly constricted view of who we are and how the world works. What Zen practice offers is a fundamental neural realignment that helps us transcend all pervasive discontent and dullness of life by rooting out the cause, an out-of-control default mode network that artificially limits who we are and how we see the world. At this stage, you might also be asking, but what about enlightenment? Isn't Zen all about enlightenment? Enlightenment is somewhat of a crude translation of the Sanskrit word bodhi, which can be more or less accurately just translated as awakening. It is considered in an awakening from the illusionary view of what we think ourself is and what we think we need to be happy. Buddhism in general, and Zen in particular, puts a lot of emphasis on the pursuit of this awakened wisdom. The problem with talking about Zen and awakening in this general manner is that from the very beginning of the tradition, there has been intense debate about what actually constitutes awakening. Some argue that the process we have been investigating here might essentially be the actualization of awakening itself. Others would vehemently disagree and say that a person must experience a sudden and profound shift of perception. Some modern observers might argue that any discussion of neurobiology and its relationship to awakening is far too reductionist and materialist to even start with. Investigating this debate is out of scope for this introductory material, but what can be seen to be extremely exciting is that modern science has come remarkably close to understanding why humans experience pervasive dissatisfaction with life and why and how mindfulness and meditation can work towards minimizing or even largely eliminating this dissatisfaction. It is fascinating to see how science is slowly unraveling the neurobiological underpinnings of the ancient wisdom and techniques of Zen. Yet another thing you may be asking yourself, is it really necessary to understand or remember all this neurobiological information to meditate? The easy answer is, of course, no, not at all. 
people have been meditating and reaping these benefits for thousands of years, long before we had even an inkling of understanding how neurobiology functions. Besides simply being interesting, the biggest value in these types of investigations are if they motivate us to begin and then continue meditation practice in the first place. The honest truth is that meditation and a dedication to its practice is sometimes hard, and it is not always obvious that it is worth the effort at the beginning stage of practices. For some of us, it can be motivating to see actual scientific information that makes it clear how this process works and that it does indeed in fact work. Not everyone will need this type of motivation or resonate with a scientific view of practice, but it can be certainly helpful and motivating for a lot of us. We have just discovered a lot of information, so let's take a moment to review what we have covered so far. Humans frequently feel dissatisfaction with life because a powerful brain network called the default mode network shapes who we think we are and generates intense expectations about what it thinks must happen for us to feel safe and happy. The default mode network spends an inordinate amount of time being upset when its expectations are not being met or worrying that they may not be met in the future. The default mode network is also forces us to think and act in habitual ways that often causes unnecessary problems and drama in our lives. The brain network that is in charge of purposeful analysis and problem solving, the central executive network, is almost completely incapable of direct control over the default mode network. As a result, we can rarely think our way out of problems and find it very hard to avoid habitual behavior. Luckily, it is possible for the central executive network to indirectly rein in the default mode network by invoking the brain network responsible for present moment awareness. Default mode habitual rumination and present moment awareness are anti-correlated. When one is active, the other is shut down. Invoking present moment awareness indirectly shuts down the default mode network's ability to crave, worry, and behave in a habitual manner. In early stages of practice, it is necessary to purposely invoke present moment awareness to shut down the default mode. With lots of meditation practice, however, a brain network called the salience network gets physically strengthened to the point where it just naturally invokes present moment awareness most of the time, even without us having to try. This neurologically increases our ability to experience awe and satisfaction even in the most mundane aspects of life. We develop a deep equanimity and can withstand the ups and downs of life. A decrease in the default mode's dominion also strengthens the brain's circuits that are responsible for feelings of compassion and connection. There are also many other scientifically validated benefits of meditation, such as more stress control, less fear, decreased experiences of physical and emotional pain, more bounce-back resilience, and a more natural objectivity in thinking. Okay, so that's the end of our presentation. Um, I really appreciate you sticking um, through it this long. I know it's a lot of information, and I know it's really dense. Um, I'd like to get people's feedback. Um, if you're watching this on uh, YouTube, uh, please, um, if you are feel motivated, you could go ahead and leave a comment down below. Um, you could also contact me via the simplicityzen.com or scienceofzen.org website. And also, uh, once again, if you could leave a um, a like and subscribe on YouTube if you're watching on YouTube. That definitely helps the metrics in getting the uh, videos distributed to a wider audience. Um, lastly, um, if this type of material resonates with you, um, 
you know, you're welcome to take a free class at scienceofzen.org uh, where we dive into this uh, with um, a lot more detail. It's generally geared towards beginner meditators, though um, if you have experience with Zen or meditation and you just want to talk about this informally, you're also welcome to reach out. Thank you very much and have a wonderful day.